are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week and episode of the Win Win Podcast. Even though it is January 10th, I feel like I didn't really address the new year in last week's episode, so I do hope that everyone kicked off 2022 healthy, happy, and all of that good stuff, despite it officially being too late to wish everybody a happy new year. I am not going to lie, it's definitely feeling a little bit like Groundhog Day here in New York City. My office is back to being remote for the month, and so I'm just personally looking forward to hopefully returning to more of a routine soon. But of course, everything is so up in the air, we will just have to wait and see. In the meanwhile, I am grateful that this podcast is fully remote, and I have some really thought-provoking content and guests coming your way, so that is really exciting. So today's guest is Anastasia Lang, who is the founder and CEO of CreativeX. In a nutshell, CreativeX uses technology, data, and AI to ensure creative excellence. And what that actually means is anything from ensuring that your content is up to creative best practices, to making sure that's meeting your brand guidelines, to compliance, and even representation of different ages and genders, and how your creative is portraying them and how frequently. This is such a fascinating conversation, which really turns the notion of data versus creative on its head. And Anastasia's founder story is really inspiring too. Uh, She started CreativeX after shutting down her previous startup, Hatch, as well as spending five years at Google. So with that, let's dive right into the episode and Anastasia's story. Hi, Anastasia. Welcome to the Win-Win Podcast. Hi. Glad we finally made this work. I know. I'm so excited. And you are the busiest woman on earth. So thank you so much for (laughs) being here. So when we first spoke, I was really intrigued by your product, CreativeX, which really takes something as personal and intuitive as creative decisions and uses data and AI for decision making. So I think before we get into all of that good stuff about your trajectory and everything, my first question is, would you define yourself as a creative and what has the role of creativity been in your trajectory thus far? It's an interesting question because if uh, if you'd asked me before if I saw myself as a creative, I would definitely say no. And I think it's because, you know, sort of socially and historically, people have been pegged into one of two camps. You're either analytical or you're creative. And for better or worse, I always sort of saw myself as being in that analytical camp. And only recently have I started to come to the conclusion that that actually you can be an analytical creative or a creative analyst, and these things don't have to be separate. And recently, I've come to find that, you know, even some of the things which I've traditionally considered these kind of data-driven analytical things are actually things that involve a lot of creativity. So I think calling myself creative is a bit like calling myself a an entrepreneur or, or, you know, an innovator, it's only a title that someone else can, can give you. I hope I am creative. I guess more than anything, I hope other people see me as being creative. Interesting. I want to 
double tap into that a little bit. You said entrepreneur is just a title that somebody else can give you. Are you not an entrepreneur? Well, I think, you know, an entrepreneur is the, the way I've always understood the title is that it's someone who is innovating, breaking new ground, etc. And I, I think it's not just the, a question of founding a company, right? You're not just sort of a business owner, which is a factual mm. statement. You're someone who's redefining things, who's doing something new for the first time. And I've always considered that as something that ultimately is up to the perception of others. That's so interesting. I I do think, you know, in the world of Forbes 30 under 30 and, you know, Fortune 500, and I think so many people are quick to say, I'm a CEO, I'm a founder, I'm an entrepreneur, because these are titles that, as you're saying, are are merit-based, but oftentimes it's just another loop to add in your belt is what I I feel like. So I think it's really interesting. Yes, you know, I have this, the the marketing team makes fun of me a little bit because I have an issue with the term thought leadership. And sometimes Mm. they'll say things like, we're going to put thought leadership content. And I'm like, only other people can describe it as being thought leadership, right? Like that is (laughs) is something that other people can describe to it. So I I personally take beef with with that content. It's similar to the term influencer, right? It is is something that other people can ascribe to, but uh, I don't know how objectively people can ascribe it to themselves. So I find that really interesting because I do think that as as you move forward in your career trajectory and today, you you technically, in my opinion, at least are an entrepreneur and you're a founder and, and CEO. But, you know, before that, you did spend five years of your career in Google and product marketing and new business development. And, you know, really curious to hear about your time in Google, specifically diving into the 20% initiative. So for those that don't know, Google has, you know, kind of a policy that keep, people can work on their side products. Projects and a lot of those things are really where the greatest ideas or entrepreneurship really comes out. So just curious about your time at Google. Did you have the ability to kind of work on side projects while you were there? Uh, I did, although the joke at Google was it was not 20%, it was the 120% project because you, <laughs> you were still expected to do your full-time job, but you somehow had to find an additional 20%. And um I have an amazing experience with the 20% project because actually my 20% project became my full-time job and arguably was Mm. what catapulted my career at Google, which is um, when I joined Google, I was placed on uh, one of the modernization teams, the teams that worked on developing Google's ad products. And uh, there was a very small team at the time who was working on monetizing what was the largest deal Google had signed in those days, which was the MySpace partnership. Remember that, MySpace? Mm-hmm. I love um, it. I think it was, yeah, it was a billion-dollar deal at the time, and it was about, you know, how, how do we use Google technology to help MySpace monetize its inventory? And long story short, it was a very difficult deal for Google to monetize, and so no one was sort of working on it, right? And I, I came across it um, randomly and uh, sort of, assigned myself to it because I really enjoyed working with the core team and went to my manager and said, hey, can I spend a little bit of time helping them figure out how do we monetize social inventory? Because again, at that point, that was that was very novel. And long story short, it, it really took off. You know, that, that project really took off partially because, again, it had a lot of exact visibility, but partially because all of a sudden social started rising and becoming a thing. Again, a lot of my trajectory at Google is based on me grabbing that 20% project, again, and getting quite lucky, frankly. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of the times, I mean, I know you mentioned that it's 120%, but a lot of the times we go through our day jobs just focusing on, you know, getting the job done. That's what we're there and paid for. You know, with this emphasis on, hey, work on something on the side, find new ways to stretch yourselves or insert yourselves into white spaces. Did the idea of entrepreneurship come up then? Or was that something that was always prevalent or only by the time you left? No, I, I, I in many ways would call myself, a, you know, an accidental founder, an accidental CEO. I did not harbor great ambitions of being a founder. I never necessarily thought myself as being capable of becoming a CEO. But what had happened is I was at Google just a little over five years. I found myself getting, frankly, a little bit bored. Um, I interviewed, I went to interview for a lot of other jobs, got a bunch bunch of job offers, VC companies, you know, other companies, tech companies, small and big, and nothing just felt right. And uh, at the time, a friend of mine at Google had an idea that he wanted to develop, which was an e-commerce company. And that was the original reason I left Google was to start an e-commerce business. And, you know, I think I just wanted to take it out. And I, I grabbed it, not really knowing what it would be. I I have a, a habit of, um, you know, my mother always used to describe it as, as I was one that kind of kids that ran into the unknown. Um, Mm. But once I'm in it, I do everything I can to make it work. So, and the reason why I think it's important to talk about that is there are probably lots of great CEOs out there who don't see themselves as CEOs, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're not capable of it. So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, I agree. And I also think there's a question of like, people talk about being risk averse or not risk averse. And I, and I do want to dive into that a little bit, but also it's about saying that I, I can take this chance on myself and taking a chance on myself is equivalent to taking a chance on another company. Right. And so I guess I'm curious for you though, right. When you, when you come out of a company like Google and five years at a company like Google or Amazon or Facebook or Netflix, right. There is a level of confidence that I can imagine you would have saying like, I'll be okay no matter what. I'm not going to be unemployed. Was that a consideration for you? Or would you recommend that people maybe start out with something more stable to help them make that leap? I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think back now to how I felt at the time. So, you know, I, I, when I first took the leap, I think it, I was in my mid to late 20s. Mm-hmm. And there's certainly, and I went, by the way, I, I'm the kind of person when I, I will go and talk to a lot of people, get a lot of different inputs and then just sort mm-hmm. of make a decision. But I, I'm very much an information gatherer. And I remember going and talking to people who'd either made the jump or thought about making the jump. And their feedback was, you know, there's a time in your life where the risk is a little bit lower. You don't have a mortgage. Mm-hmm. You don't have kids. You don't really have that many sure. expenses. And from that point of view, I think having had a couple of years at Google, where more than anything, I had, uh, you know, a little bit of savings that I could mm-hmm. use so I could start the company, uh, you know, and, and we were, we bootstrapped the company for, for a couple of years because wow. we couldn't get investment. And so certainly from that point of view, having the experience really helps. But look, the, the flip side is uh, there are people who, who were sort of born with that entrepreneurial mindset and sure. from day one, and they can be just as successful. Yeah, 100%. And I have friends who have never taken an internship and just like dive deep into yes. a certain industry and, and listen, they're they're killing it. So yeah, no, no, I hear that. I, I'm really curious about, you know, the the winding down of startups, right? Because a lot of the times you hear that, 
for, for people who start out in entrepreneurship, they tell them, don't expect your first company to succeed. A lot <laughs> of the people who are success stories, they've failed more than once. And I don't mean failed like in a project, as in like their companies have failed. You started CreativeX in August of 2015, but you were still kind of involved with Hatch um, until 2017. So really curious about the ramping down period and how you, know, how you knew to pull the trigger and say, I've got to move on when you are a co-founder. Yeah. So at, at that point, you know, I had been, my, my co-founder had left a couple years before he realized sort of a year in that his passions lay elsewhere. And I was, uh, I was trying to make it work. Right. And what had happened was we were trying to figure out how to drive demand for hatch and just nothing was working for us. And I started noticing that, you know, imagery and video was really important and toying around with what eventually ended up becoming creative acts. But we initially weren't thinking of that technology as a new business. We were literally trying to do those things to make the e-com business work. I felt a lot of mm -hmm. pressure to make it work because all my old managers at Google were investors in the company. And so, you know, the reality is we never sort of really wound Hatch down until the very, very end. Because right. we, when the CreativeX technology we were building basically started to save Hatch and the revenue we were generating started to go up... I went to fundraise and a number of investors who took a little bit of a deeper look at the business said, like, how are you growing? And what's happening here? So we'd explain the things we were doing and they said, oh, you should do that instead. And we were actually much more excited about that uh, because, you know, a lot of us came from an analytics heavy world. And so what we ended up doing was was working on what became CreativeX and we just kept Hatch running in the background. And it was generating enough revenue and it was sort of paying its own bill. So we just ran in the background and I would look at it for a couple of hours every Sunday and like sort of make small tweaks here and there. Got it. And then eventually CreativeX started growing so fast that Hatch was a distraction in the rearview mirror. And we just made the decision to shut it down and, and sell off the assets. But it, it wasn't sort of the big wind down that a lot of companies that shut down and then completely start over go through. And you mentioned you and the team were excited because this new thing, well, one, as you mentioned, it was succeeding, but also this kind of area was more exciting. But I can imagine if, you know, especially investors who are not as involved on the day-to-day -day come to you and, and they tell you, you know, do this or do that, there's definitely an element of, you know, this is your company and your baby. How do you think you were able to actually put your personal feelings aside and listen to that good advice? And, and what was that experience like for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, at that point, it was it was becoming very clear. So uh, we'd been trying to raise for our hatch that summer after reversing some of our revenue trends. I'd had, I want to say, over 100 different investor meetings, mm. uh, which ended up with 100 different no's, all of a really similar variety, right? Which was, you know, we like you, we really love your team, but we sort of hate what you're building and we hate the space you're in. Right. And it was like, a, you know, call me when you do something else thing. And we were running out of money. We had about $7,000 in our bank account. And so I had a couple of meetings lined up in San Francisco and they were sort of the last, the last meetings we had in the books, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I still remember this very vividly because it is a very kind of pivotal moment in our journey where our CTO and I, he walked me to Penn Station so I can get on, uh, on the train to go to, to New York airport and fly to San Francisco. And I was like, look, we keep doing the same thing and it's not working. Right. That's madness. Yeah, that's madness. That is literally the definition of madness. 
Mm-hmm. What if I go out there and, and what if we just say something else? Like, what if we just try talking about how we saved Hatch rather than Hatch itself? And at that point, we had nothing else to lose. And so what had happened was we went into those meetings and I still, again, I still remember this incredibly vividly. And they said, okay, you know, you come in, there's like a bit of small talk and banter. And they're like, right, tell me about Hatch. And, and I said, I'm not here to talk about Hatch anymore. I was like, look, Hatch is not working. What I'm going to tell you about is how we got Hatch from sort of nothing to profitable unique economics. And I started, you know, I didn't have a deck. I didn't have a company name. I had nothing. <laughs> I just had sort of a story, basically. And uh, and I flew to San Francisco on a Wednesday night. And I flew back on Saturday morning. And within those three days, I got term sheets for a company that didn't yet exist. That's insane. Yeah. And, and you know, after getting 100 no's, you're like, really? That's all it took. (laughs) But you know what's what's crazy to think about in retrospect was that at that point, because we had so so little money left, I also had to I kind of had to burn the candle on both ends, and I Mm -hmm. started looking for acquisition offers so that at least the team could have a good landing place. Um, And so we had a couple of acquisition conversations going again, mostly of the aqua hire variety. And so I came back to the team in New York and I was like, okay, look, we can either go work at some of these big companies and and take a break or we can start this new company. And I remember at that point, I was exhausted. I personally was like, I hope we take these acquisition offers. Yeah, and I go work in the corporations again. (laughs) Yeah, just like take them. But, you know, I wasn't even thinking myself. I felt so much guilt over the uncertainty and the stress I brought to the team. So... Mm -hmm. And I, I said to them, I said, um, look, like, here's sort of the options. Anything we do, we, we do together. Right. Um, and and I said, why don't you talk about it? I will leave the room. And I, our CTO stayed in there so you can be very honest about what you want and you don't feel like you're going to offend me or whatnot. And when you're ready for me to come back in, just call me in. And so they, they stayed there for about an hour, an hour and a half. And then they called me in and they were like, look, we can all go work at these big companies if we wanted to. A lot of the, our team come from big companies and sort of very consciously made the decision to go somewhere smaller. But we, we all really like working together and we're sort of not ready to give up. And so, and that's how we did it, you know, and, and part that's of amazing. it was, it, you know, investors, yes, of course, they saw something that, that we sort of maybe fully didn't. Um, but a big part of this was the team. I mean, that, and actually a lot of those people who were there for that conversation are still around today, which is probably the thing it's I'm huge. proudest of. So that conversation happens. And of course, and now, you know, six and a half years later, you are still here, still going strong. The company is growing more than ever. So let's talk about what really was successful about CreativeX. And going back to our conversation around creativity, you take something that, again, a lot of people would say is intuitive and kind of maybe woo-woo, and you kind of create infrastructure, frameworks, AI around it. So talk to me all about that. Yeah, I think the, you know, the big insight that we had at the time was that more and more of the way we were communicating was visual. And yet there was very little data to help us understand what what were we saying and what was working and what wasn't. And what had happened also was, you know, we went through this huge like content proliferation cycle where all of a sudden Instagram and Pinterest and YouTube and TikTok and display and all of a sudden, everything was visual. And so before you could probably like, if you were running 100 ads or 100 pieces of content, you could look at them and sort of make sense of it. But when you're doing thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, it's no longer something you can do. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that was the, the the insight that we'd had when we were back at Hatch. 
And so what we started doing, and by the way, we had 12 versions of our product before we launched the one that actually seemed to add value and took off. And the realization that we had was, again, it's not about telling creative people what to do. It is about giving them a framework in which their ideas are more likely to be seen and noticed by others. And so the challenge that we heard from a lot of the marketers that we talked to was we're creating more content than ever before. But as we're scaling up our content, we know the quality is decreasing and we have no way of automatically figuring out, does this piece of creative do what I need it to do? Is it consistent mm-hmm. with my brand, right? Is it leveraging all the things I've learned that make content successful? Is it um, set up correctly? Is it taking account that TikTok is a different environment than YouTube? And how you scale that across 100,000 pieces of content with something you needed technology to do. And that was the first product that we launched that that really took off, which wasn't about creativity, really. It was a, a tool to give creative ideas a canvas in which they could thrive. And just, you know, zooming in on that a little bit, I mean, when you think about creative quality, which is, you know, one of the pillars that you use. Yes. I feel like creative quality is incredibly contextual, right? You take a Van Gogh, and it's a Van Gogh, right? But if you put it on a display ad, it's probably not going to do what you need it to do or what you want it to do. So talking about creative quality, which is really, as I mentioned, contextual and subjective, frankly, would you say that context is something you account for? Context is definitely something we account for. And for us, the context can be everything uh, such as the platform that it's on, right? Again, uh, you know, even like YouTube versus TikTok versus Instagram, all different contexts, all different Mm -hmm. user behaviors, all different um, consumption moments. The intent of the of the content you're putting out there is it to build brand or is it to drive conversion? That is something right. you can take into account, right? So, so absolutely, we take context into account. I mean, you have to. What we see is that you know there are there are occasionally global truths that we find that are statistically relevant regardless of context. But then there are a lot of things to your point that are very much context specific. Uh, and you you have to take context into account. There's no other way. And I know you mentioned that your platform is, you know, AI driven. It uses AI powered technology. So my not so extensive knowledge of AI is that ultimately it's, you know, it's a set of rules. So somebody puts in those rules and then the more information that you get based off those rules, the the more robust the system becomes. So I guess my question is really when you started out, with building out the technology, how did you determine kind of the recipe and the ingredients that you put into the AI cake? Uh, it's a tremendous amount of trial and error that never stops. You know, no no system is perfect. There's a lot of misunderstanding about AI as this great, perfect, 100% accurate system. And it, right, is, no. it is not that. It is nowhere near that. Uh, one of our investors used to say, you know, that a lot of companies uh, talk about machine learning and he would say there are machines and there's learning, but I'm not sure it's the machines that are learning. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, again, I think that that's pretty representative of what a lot of stories deal with, but it is trial and error, right? It's like cooking. You put a bunch of things to your point in the soup and then you taste it and you see if, if, you know, it tasted like what you thought it would. And then you continue Mm -hmm. tweaking the ingredients until you get to a place that it's done, but the problem is you, you finish one meal and then you have to kind of bake the next, right? And so right. it's a never-ending process. 
You know, when you're working with a client, take me through an example of like how you really help them innovate. And I'll use the word innovate since I know you don't, but um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if we take, for example, a client like Unilever, Mondelez or Heineken, um, these are brands that are global. Um, they have maybe two, 300 sub brands underneath their portfolio and they are going through this this place of scaling content production. So what we've done with those brands is figure out what are some of the creative elements that systematically and consistently increase marketing performance. And then we've been able to automate the detection of those things and roll them out such that any new creative that's being made will go through our system and check to make sure it meets each of those brands' specific criteria, their definition of creative quality, because there isn't a global, you know, one size fits all mm-hmm, definition. Mm-hmm. And what we're also able to point out, which is what's led to a lot of cost savings, is where in the organization are we spending the most money on content that doesn't adhere to your standards? Again, remember, these aren't our standards. These are brands. Got it. Standards. Got it. Okay. And, you know, for, for all these organizations within a year of working together, we save them tens of millions of dollars because we're able to tell them, here are the agencies, the brands, the markets, the the kind of categories where content is being created that doesn't even have a chance of succeeding because it's not leveraging these learnings and then start to optimize and fix that one market and brand at a time. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm definitely biased in and, you know, asking these questions, because I spent two years in digital advertising working, you know, on the account management and strategy side. So working with the designers, working with the agencies and working with the brands, I guess, just thinking about my own experience, there are so many checks and balances, right? So even if you add in Creative X, I can imagine that there are a lot of people that have to be kind of bought into this approach to measuring creative and handling content. So what are some of the insights that you've learned uh, working across all those ecosystems? Yeah, what we found is that um, typically what happens is uh, when a brand rolls us out, they will rule us out on a global basis, meaning that they really, once they start having some visibility into the creative, they want visibility across all their creative. And in order to make that successful, you do need senior level buy-in because as you pointed out, it's not really about the, the, the difficulty in the implementation is not about kind of the technical bits and pieces. It's really the soft change management of it, where all of a sudden you have to convince people to go to a new place and do anything that they haven't done before. Yeah. The way we've tried to come across it is, you know, we want to streamline user behavior from that point of view. We know that sometimes having another tool is annoying. And so what we've done is we thought about where does content that designers create already live? And can we integrate ourselves as a layer on top of that so they don't have to think about, okay, I do this, now I have to do this other thing, et cetera. And so our strategy has been to integrate with DAMs or digital asset managers so that anytime a piece of content is uploaded into a digital asset manager, you know, it'll just go to us. They don't have to do anything. We'll look at it for all of those things that are important to the brand and we'll return it back into the digital asset manager with our data overlaid on top. And so it's, you know, it's sort of this layer that sits on top of it that gives them the information they need, helps them make sure that they're producing good content for their brands without giving them additional flows and steps in their work process. Just hearing you talk about all of this, I mean, my question is almost too large for life, but there are so many different bits and pieces to this, and this is a technology product. And, you know, you didn't study computer science in your background. So I guess just 
curious, how did you go about, you know, one, being a, a founder of a tech company without the direct, I guess, tech uh, background? And how have you gone about learning all of these different facets of the industry? Yeah, you know, I, um, so the, the tech bit, I've always been surrounded. Everything I've ever done in my sort of professional life has been uh, working with engineers. And I I cannot walk the walk, but I can talk the talk. Right. And when I started at Google, I remember it was so intimidating because, you know, I didn't understand half of what the engineers were saying. And that felt very threatening to me that I, Absolutely. you know, I, I feared that they wouldn't respect me. So I would spend my Saturdays sitting at, you know, Barnes and Noble at the time and just reading books that would help me sort of understand this stuff because I wanted to be respected by my team. And I felt felt I it was important that. for me to learn their language. In terms of the, the building the product itself, you know, one of the things I love about product management is that if you are decent at listening and really listening, you could probably do a really good job. And so I, I don't think there is this sort of secret sauce or anything that I did that is exceptionally revolutionary to anyone. I think as we started building this, a lot of what I did was I would go to people and say, hey, we have this technology. What are some problems you might want to solve with it? And then you look for patterns in that. And then those, you know, and then you expect, which is why we had 12 versions of a product before we mm-hmm. got to one where we were, where people were like, yeah, this is a, this is the one I really want to pay for. And I want to pay for it annually. And I want to put all my content in it. And we're like, cool, let's do it. And knowing how many different stakeholders you have, whether that is hypothetically a designer and the marketing team and the agencies and the brands, were you able to spend time with the consumers at all? Or how do you go about that, especially in a B2B setting? I do find that it's a little bit harder. Initially, we went after everyone. We threw rocks in a lot of different directions. And then we Mm -hmm. listened to where we got the loudest echo. And the loudest echo came from the brands. I think what we saw from the agencies was that they wanted to talk to us and parade us around, but then oftentimes they try to cut us out of the conversation. Right. More often than not, they wanted to white label our technology or private label our technology. And we we didn't want that. We wanted to be, you know, we wanted to build sort of a brand in the B2B world. And for consumers or the, the actual users of our product, you know, we didn't actually start looking at that till later because initially all we did for brands was just look at all their existing content that was running and give them this data. So they were the buyer and the user of one and the same. And when the brands said, oh my gosh, we have a really big problem, you know, only 20% of our content is meeting the things that we consider important to us. They asked us to build preventative tools, tools that would then get rolled out to all their agency partners and all their marketeers and all of that. And that's when we started, we started sort of noticing that we had two audiences, right? We had the analytics kind of admin users, and then we had the everyday content creator users. And it has been uh, a focus of ours to spend more and more time with them so we understand their problems as well as we understand the problems of the the admin of the organization. Yeah, and and then I think it totally closes out the loop on like why your standards of creative quality are brand-based and very specific to each company to really account for all those different users. So it's really, really incredible. So I really do want to ask you to look in the crystal ball because I know I'm very curious about where you're going, where the company's going, and ask you one last innovation question, which is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? 
myself. So the journey that I am on now is redefining what a good CEO is at this stage of of the company as it's growing very quickly. So one month from now, what I where I hope to be is in a place where I will have a clearer sense of what does the CEO of a 50 to 100 person company do and act and uh, what does good look like for them? For the company, uh, I hope to have our Series B completed. Maybe a month is too aggressive, but one to two months, let's say, from now. A year from now, I hope to feel good about being the CEO of a 100 person company. A year from now, we should be um, just over 100 people. And that'll be a completely different challenge for me. And I'll, I hope that I will feel like I am doing a good job because it's a very different job than the job I'm doing now. And if I'm being truthful, I don't know if I can do that job. Right. Right. And and I guess I just hope that a year from now I'll feel like, yes, I have, uh, if not mastered, gotten to a place where I am doing well by my team and I'm doing right by my team. I think for the company, there's a lot of stuff that we want to do, but a, a big area of focus for us is how do we take some of our representation technology, uh, which is about helping people determine how inclusive their advertising is and make that something that is available to the whole industry so that we can, we can, we can help people be a little bit more responsible for their, what they have. Ten years from now, personally, um, I hope I'll be an author. I've always wanted to write, and I, will, I hope I have an opportunity to do that. As for the industry, I think what we will see is uh, sort of something that I've seen for myself personally, which is this redefinition of what creative means. Because I think being creative is no longer just about, you know, sort of being right-brained or whatever the case may be. Um, code is now creative. Data is now creative. And I, I think we'll see a very big molding combination of these two disciplines into a much richer definition and expectation from that word. I love that. And I'm so excited to watch you and the company grow. Thank you for your thought leadership, for your influence, for your innovation. <laughs> I, I It's been so incredible talking to you. Thank you. It was so nice to be here. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.